That's a real source of pride that they can see that, you know, we are really interested in voice and we are, are really interested in perspective and the unique perspective that writers bring to work. So, yeah, be yourself. So as we wind down 2020 on the podcast, we are taking advantage of the season to reach out to some of our former guests to see how they've been doing. Dave Bedini is a Canadian musician and one of the founding members of the rock band Rheostatics. He also plays with Bedini Band. He came to our attention a couple of years ago from Amber Healy, who is our Buffalo-based producer who is a huge music fan and a huge lover of all things Canada. So she brought it to our attention that Dave was publishing the West End Phoenix, which is a local broadsheet newspaper that's been covering Toronto's West End since October 2017. We spoke to him back in April 2019, and uh, Dave reached out to us actually before the election with this project that he uh, did at the, the West End Phoenix called The Americans. And so we thought it'd be a great time to talk to him about that and about what's been going on with the Phoenix. So welcome back to the podcast, Dave. Hey, it's great to be here. So it's been a, it's been a little while since we spoke and the world's kind of changed a little bit. Uh, <laughs> some for the worse, some for the better. But anywho, before we get too far into this, can you sort of tell me about the Phoenix, remind everybody what it is and you know how often you put it out and, and what kind of its focus is? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a broadsheet home-delivered newspaper. Originally focused on the West End of Toronto, but we've had so many subscribers right across the city that our focus has widened a little bit. We found ourselves mailing quite a few across the country. And we have several dozen American subscribers as well. The idea was to kind of reinvent the community newspaper a little bit. Where I live in the West End of Toronto, you know, I'm surrounded by dozens of, you know, brilliant award-winning poets, playwrights, novelists, you know, Margaret Atwood is a few blocks away. She lives in a much nicer part of the West End, but we have at our disposal a lot of, you know, so many brilliant writers who, frankly, aren't, just aren't writing as much as they used to because the opportunities don't exist. I mean, I relate it back to my own life as a writer. You know, there was, the phone would, would ring constantly from, you know, newspapers, media outlets across the country, writing op-ed pieces, writing sports so the, the opportunities are left are left wanting, and therefore we had all of these writers, you know, at our disposal who were looking to write. So we thought, well, what if they wrote about the neighborhood, as opposed to sort of more broadly focused work? And that's how I think we're a little bit different as a community newspaper. That's not just to say that we've lost sight of what really kind of makes the community newspaper part of the community, and that's truly micro local stories. You know, we try to elevate the form while respecting the form, I suppose. And so, yeah, it's been four years for us. You know, we're we're nonprofit, independent newspaper. There were a lot of independent community newspapers in Toronto, and they were all consolidated, bought by Metroland, the Toronto Star Parent Company, about 10 years ago. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to sort of slip into the vacuum. And so we've, yeah, continued kind of barreling along. And um, I think we're sort of, we're continuing to grow and become this thing simply because I think just there is a demand, you know, and there seems to be a real kind of a devoted, you know, appetite for this sort of thing in our catchment, which is a really evolving catchment anyways. And I think Toronto is kind of an evolving city that way as well. So, you know, I think we've sort of arrived at the right time. And listen, every day is a battle, obviously, but we're encouraged by where we are. And I think we're one of the few good news journalism stories, frankly. Most of our stuff exists in print. We run about three or four stories on our website a month. And we're starting to do a little bit more online, but we're still pretty much an analog entity. 
Yeah, back in 2019, after we spoke, you sent me a stack of papers. It's a beautiful paper. It's really well designed. You know, it sort of harkens back to when, you know, people actually, you know, cared about the look of a newspaper of stories and art and photography on a page. And, you know, wonderful photographers as well. Great black and white photography of people and things that just sort of speak almost from like a, it's all the stuff is contemporary, but it, it almost speaks from like another age, another sensibility of, you know, journalism, which is something I really liked. It's interesting to, you know, the number of subscri- subscribers for us who've never had a newspaper subscription, frankly, you know, of those that cheat sort of the younger demographic. And frankly, the percentage of them have never held a newspaper before. So it was interesting to kind of, you know, I'm reminded about what I love about newspapers because I started, you know, our band was first covered in the Etobicoke Guardian, and I first had my, I had my first bit of writing published in the Toronto Sun when I was 11 years old. So I, you know, I know what it's like to get up in the morning and read a broadsheet, but, you know, kids in their, you know, 20s and 30s have never really had that experience. To say nothing of having, you know, a paper delivered to them, which is really kind of novel and lovely. So in the paper, we do sort of, we do like to kind of herald that time, you know, when reading a broadsheet in your kitchen meant dominating that room with the broadsheet and the broadsheet being a real presence in one's home and one's one's life. And we didn't know originally, you know, what size we would go with until, you know, I was, uh, I think I might've used this anecdote the last time we spoke, but when we were dreaming up the paper, I found a copy of the Urdu Times, which is um, an ethnic paper, a community paper in the city. And it was it had 15 inch pages and I was astonished that you could still print papers that big. So we just decided to go to as big as possible and we found a printer who could facilitate that. And so it's a really, really, really big paper and it does harken back to that time. You know, I was watching the crown recently and and one of the great things about the crown is, you know, daily they'll march into, you know, the queen's chambers with stacks of newspapers or the prime minister's office. They got all, you know, all the fleet street papers. And there's a lot of broadsheet porn in that, uh, in that series and other series from that other time. And you're reminded how beautiful broadsheets really are. And it's nice to see that resonate with a whole kind of group of subscribers who just never got a chance to experience that. You had to actually read a paper in order for you to generate a hot take. And then you, you, you didn't have anywhere to tweet it out to. You had to That's you know, right. get on the phone or you had to write a letter to somebody. Totally. Uh, well, there's, there's even that psychology too, Michael, about, you know, horizontal reading versus vertical reading, you know, reading across a page, you know, an article that continues on another page, you know, an interesting thing, and this is comes back, comes to us from our subscribers, how attached they are to the sound of the newspaper. <laughs> you know, how it's like, you don't get that on your phone, right? It, the news does not sound like anything unless it's a visual or an audio clip, obviously. But to read a newspaper means to truly engage with that entity. And, you know, the ruffling of the pages and the sound of it, and even that, you know, subconscious act of turning a page and continuing a story, it allows your reading consciousness to breathe a little bit. Whereas if you're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling and reading that way, it is a little bit relentless. And there's, there's an embedded kind of respite in the work that sort of feeds into the, just the general concept of what we're trying to achieve with it, I think. And the great thing is, you know, and I kind of touched on it before about the look of the paper, you know, people get this paper delivered to their home and, you know, they read it and they absorb it. And 
you are enthralling them and you are getting them to do that horizontal reading by the the power of your words and the you know the imagery and the design with which you put this together and so it's all of those psychological tools that have been developed over centuries of how to communicate to people in a paper medium like that there's some of that and you know that you get that like if you're reading something on a tablet or like on a screen uh like a like a laptop screen but i don't think it's the same you know has the same psychological effect in that same relationship between the the reader and the word well yeah and i i even think that you could sort of extend that to you know the that gesture of home delivery as well you know not you're not getting your news by turning on your your laptop or your phone and clicking you you're literally you're getting your news handed to you by a human being or left on your doorstep or delivered you know to your home and you know i know this from sell, just selling subscriptions in the beginning, you know, that, that, that sort of porch, that porch life, that, that once you've kind of crossed the threshold and you're on the steps, you're on the porch of, of, of your name, of your neighbor and you're bringing them news, there's something, you know, it is one level purely romantic, but I also just think important in our time, you know, and the pandemic in fact has really, we didn't know, you know, when COVID hit and the city shut down, we had no idea how that would affect the, you know, the, the nature of the paper, the fate of the paper. But it, but being being a home delivered, largely a home delivered entity has really helped because, you know, when people weren't leaving their homes, we were out there delivering it to them. I think people were really sort of, uh, you know, drawn to that. And listen, our, our, our deliverers, we have, you know, over 100 volunteer deliverers and they're the real, you know, heroes, champions of, of what we do. I mean, they come and collect the paper, um, you know, once a month, once every five weeks. And they, Trump, this is Toronto, right? It's a cold city right in the winter. So this is like, like they show up in the park, their parkas and their, their winter boots and they head out with their bundle of papers and they, they get the paper out. So, so that, that whole kind of, you know, the veneer of that story and that, that narrative has really been appealing to our subscribers and stuff too. And we're happy to hold up the side that way. Yeah, COVID has really kind of exploded the the delivery economy in so many ways because we're all stuck at home. I don't know about you, my my Amazon bill has has been going up all year, and you know some of it's like you know yeah this is essential stuff, but sometimes it's nice to have something brought to you, you know. And I used to laugh a lot to be honest about the idea, the sort of Rube Goldberg process of a daily newspaper where you talk to the mayor at, at 5 p.m., you write a story, you goes to the editor, it goes to a printer, and then it goes into a truck, and then some kid on his bike delivers it to your front door. It's a fascinating process that, you know, it's just almost maddening to think that, that this is what you came up with in order for you to exist as a, as a news delivery system, that so much of that has been swept aside by digital delivery, in quotes. You know, I think also with, with COVID as well, we're so much more aware. Our, one of our board members, the former city planner for the for Toronto, Jennifer Kismet, and former mayoral candidate, she she's spoken about the 15-minute city and about how during COVID we're so much more aware of, you know, that store at the corner of our street, you know, and is there a hardware store that we have don't have to travel a half hour to get to? You know, where do we buy our bread? that sort of thing so people really became aware of us like as a neighborhood entity in that sense I think it really kind of helped us as well having been established in our neighborhood you know local news I think local news is like listen 
it, it could always be, you know, m more present, you know, in the way we think about media. But I really think it's been boosted by the way just we perceive local and we perceive community and we perceive neighborhood and and just an awareness of community and our volunteer deliverers are really just such a huge part of their community in the sense that you know we have one volunteer who he knows all of all of our readers on his route and you know he's invited in this is pre-pandemic but he's has been invited in for coffee and we have another volunteer deliverer who ends his route having a beer on the porch with you know the last person on his route so that's those are really nice stories and none, none that we expected when we ever when we set out for this that we you know the neighborhood would be illuminated in, in these ways for the, the people who you know who help do what we do I want to, you know, check in on reality here a little bit as we romanticize the whole, the whole uh, paper journalism. So let's stop short of saying, you know, the smell of newspapers, like people talk about the smell of books, yeah, as opposed to reading them on a tablet or on your phone. But let's talk about, you know, content here. Let's talk about this project that you did, the Americans. How did you come up with it? And could you sort of describe what it was and what it is? You know, so much of what we do is micro and local and community neighborhood based, but we also, with our readership, which is fairly fairly wide, I think, in terms of who gets it, we just wondered what we might do in terms of writing about a larger, sort of a broader issue, while continuing to sort of straddle that big slash small idea. And we found, too, you know, like leading up to the American election, sure, people were talking about, you know, that building that's going up at the corner of the street, and people were talking about, oh, you know, issues with education and police and housing and the usual, but also everybody was talking about the American election. So it's was like, well, I guess since people are in our neighborhoods are talking about it, maybe we can address it. And, you know, I, just for me as a Torontonian, as a Canadian, and this is particularly true in music and certainly true in journalism too at a time, but not necessarily in my personal experience, but you know, I came across a lot of draft dodgers, certainly, in my time. You know, Americans who'd moved up here in the 60s, opened bookstores, ran clubs, started bands, started record labels. There's a real legacy of that, and certainly a legacy of, of Americans living in the West End of Toronto. So we thought, well, wouldn't it might be a way to talk about the American election and the state of the U.S. through the West End lens and through the lens of Americans who ended up here for, for one reason or another. And while we were kind of floating this idea, a photo gallery opened at the corner of our street, and uh, one of the few in the city dedicated entirely to photographs. I was in there just dropping off a couple of papers to them, and they had recently uncovered an 80,000-slide archive of a photographer named Joan Latchford, who um, photographed uh, here primarily in the 60s and 70s. And I told them what we were planning with the Americans, and they told, told us that they had a massive archive of photos of draft dodgers, really first wave kids that came up to Canada in the 60s. And so um, we looked at a bunch of these photos and they were beautiful and they, they sought permission and gained permission for us to use them. So the, the issue is 25 stories from 25 Americans living in Canada, you know, really about how they're experiencing political life and the upcoming election through their experiences not being in America, you know, and the stories from relatives, cousins, family members back home and how, and also just about where they're, they're at in their lives as Americans living elsewhere. So, and we rushed that out too. Our October issue was printed, I think, October 14th, and we wanted to get the Americans out before the election. So our November issue actually dropped just before Halloween, and so we actually produced two issues concurrently, which nearly killed us. But we felt it important to just try to do something 
on a bit more of a broad scale to see if we could do it. And I think ultimately that's something that we aspire to. You know, I always remember, you know, reading the Village Voice because it spoke about, you know, it wrote about New York, but really it was writing about the world. You know, it was writing about issues that touched everyone. And so that's sort of what we were trying to go with, go for with this issue. And what I liked about it, I mean, when I first thought about it, my original idea was, oh, this is, they talked to 25 people who left Canada because of Donald Trump, because of the political climate here in, in the United States. And that wasn't actually the case. There were maybe a, a couple, but the majority of them had moved to Canada for a variety of reasons. You know, they're all sort of personal reasons, you know, either family or, or a job or, or, you know, they're following somebody that they love. And, and so it's giving the perspective more of the expatriate and, you know, them reflecting on their life living in Canada and what that means. And then looking back at, at the United States, the, the current situation and, you know, sort of offering a take on that and how they feel about it. And what I found really kind of fascinating is that many of them, you know, I don't want to say many of them, some of them, this was not a rah-rah Canada story. You know, some of them had issues with Canada, you know, being able to afford to, you know, live in a, in a lifestyle that they'd been used to in the United States. Canada was, was proving to be difficult for some of them. Some of them would have liked to have gone back to the United States. It's not just one story. It's, a, you know, it's 25 stories, but it's a lot of different perspectives on the expatriate sort of examining the United States in history, looking across, you know, Lake Erie <laughs> to, <laughs> to the United States, looking across the Niagara River and pondering. And I found it really kind of a, a fun read and really kind of insightful in a lot of different ways. What was your take? Well, no, we, you know, listen, one of the things that I wanted to check at the door was the, you know, the self-aggrandizement that happens when Canadians write about the States, you know, we're, we're pretty good at feeling ourselves, positioning ourselves as superior. We often forget, you know, we overlook our own issues, you know, when talking about ourselves in the context of, of the States. And yeah, so it was important that it wasn't just a, a love letter to Canada. You know, a lot of those opinions just were offered, you know, honestly and directly. They didn't have to coax them out of the subjects. A lot of people said, yeah, you know, it's great being in Toronto, but, you know, I miss my home. And I miss my family and I miss this about, about living in the United States. And, you know, one woman talks about having a, you know, a beautiful home in Detroit with, you know, a big front lawn, a big back lawn and, you know, um, what it costs her to live there compared to living in the city. And, and the truth of the matter is, it's way cheaper to live in Detroit and you get, you know, more for what you pay for. And, you know, there's obviously issues in that city, can be, but it's a trade-off, right? And people do make those decisions. I was pleasantly surprised, you know, people still were able to, you know, talk about their yearning for a place that they left. Because again, often you find when there's Canadians or perspective from Canada about other places, not even, you know, the States, it's always, you know, gun laws and healthcare and blah, 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 blah. But there's, there's a lot of ways that we fall short. Right. So yeah, no, I was, I, I was thrilled that, that we were able to get out there. And, and, and I don't know if you mentioned it, but instead of the broadsheet, we printed kind of a small, quite a small compact, almost book sized issue this time as well. And it's just fun for us to play with the forms too. And that kind of gave us an opportunity to do that. So almost like it would read like a little, you know, like a novella or, or a set of short stories as opposed to a large broadsheet. Yeah. And these were all personal narratives. These were not things that you interviewed. So maybe you interviewed somebody, but, but it's not a Q and a, it's them sort of 
you know, short or long, whatever thoughts that they want to express about their relationship with the Canada, their, their perspective of the United States. You know, one of the ones that, that jumps to mind is the, the young man who I think he was born in Canada, but he's the woman he loves is in Buffalo. And when he's in Canada, he wants to be with her. And so when he's with her, he's always longing to be back in Canada. And then the other thing that, that I was pleased about, again, this is from my initial thoughts of having the project described to me, was, you know, you hear a certain, you've heard a certain perspective over the last four years of people saying, if Donald Trump wins, Trump wins again, I'm moving to Canada. Well, f- first of all, you can't do that right now because of the COVID restrictions. But this idea that, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going to someplace else because they're better, they're more understanding. And I think that this is a really kind of an interesting almost response to that. Yeah, you know, people move here and the, the experiences they have may not as be as rosy as that you wanted. And they, and some of them were very frank about the fact that they were concerned about the state of the United States. You know, they wish they could be here to somehow help foment change as they recognized a lot of the you know problems that, that we, we were dealing with, political, racial injustice, things like that. So it's a really good thought piece about, it's almost like, it's almost like, you know, Canada having sort of a, a family reunion and looking over the fence at their neighbor <laughs> and saying, yeah, those, those Americans, you know, <laughs> last night I heard them yelling at each other. It's a little bit of that, but it's a little bit more. Which of the stories kind of spoke to you, do you think? They're all pretty different and all pretty singular. Yeah, you know, one of the stories that resonates with me is, you know, the woman who, I think this gets back to the 60s, who, you know, uh, hitchhiked across the country and ended up, you know, I think her first day in Ontario, she was taken to a recording studio and the band Thundermug was recording and uh, it's kind of a, you know, a minor, but, you know, notable Canadian band and how she was like, wow, you know, this is a country where you're able to just sort of be invited into this place and this big, great band is playing. And now she's been here for 45 years, but truth of the matter is like, and she acknowledges this, like she just got lucky basically. Right. <laughs> there were a lot of people who came up here just weren't able to make it, you know, for whatever reason. And I think maybe it was like this exists today where people think, oh, I'm just going to come to Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, wherever. Rarely do they want to go to Regina. Go to Saskatoon if you're going to go to Saskatchewan. That's my that's my tip. But the thought that you can just come up here and buy a house and get a job is preposterous, you know? So that was interesting to have sort of that reveal. And then there's, you know, there's charming, there's a lot of charm too uh, about, you know, the stories of, you know, the guy who tosses his wallet into the into the trees while he's walking through the city because three kids are approaching him and he thinks he's, that's what that's, he says, that's what he would do if he did that, if he was downtown in his city, this is in the seventies and stuff too. And then, you know, one of the kids turns to him and says, Hey, mister, you dropped your wallet and like delivers the wallet to him. No. And, then, and that's great. And that's an interesting story. He, he actually ended up in San Francisco and now has returned to Toronto. So it was also, I think like at the Phoenix, we sort of try to do the things that legacy media are sort of too kind of locked into themselves to be able to sort of pivot or to sort of reimagine what they can do as a newspaper. Like we feel, you know, great that, you know, we have this really engaged readership and they'll allow us to do different things. You know, in the summer we did a a CD booklet sized 5,000 word essay 
about listening to music during the pandemic it was called the summer P playlist and it just arrived in a neat you know tidy small little envelope to people that we mailed we mailed to everyone you know this issue an issue coming up with a beautiful full color poster of you know the cover that was um painted by a great artist in toronto elixir elliott and over the last couple of years we've pressed flexi discs that we've included in our music issue so just trying to do like really kind of different things things that you know a newspaper should be able to do and ways that newspapers can be interesting and one of the great privileges is like I, like I said like people allow us to get allow us through their door slot right and they I think entrust us to be kind of lively and interesting and, and that's was part of what the Americans was yeah and congratulations it, it is a great read now I'm curious about this summer listening book summer playlist yeah the playlist yeah I'll um, send one of those to you Great, great. Let's sort of wrap up here. And what would you recommend to somebody who wants to, you know, be a journalist in the new year? I mean, we're coming up on the new year. It's always time to make resolutions. What would you say to the journalist in 2021? What would you say, hey, you know, maybe it'd be fun to do this. Maybe it'd be good to do this. Not being a journalist per se, you know, I think it's sort of a hard Storyteller. For me. Let's do that. Yeah. All right. I mean, I always feel that you know, everybody's experience is singular. Everybody's experience is unique. You know, a story is important because it's yours. Don't write what you expect other people to read. Write what you want to read and be yourself. And I think that's in any artistic discipline, that's important. I remember Johnny Ramone telling me, you know, just being yourself is being intelligent. And, you know, I thought that was really good advice, you know? And I think what he was also trying to say is, you know, there's something that really, I think people admire in that because a lot of our society spends time trying to be like something else or something they think they should be. And I think that's true with journalism. Voice is important too. And the truer you know yourself and the more confident you are in telling your story, the truer your voice is going to be. And that's what we're looking for. Listen, we have very, very serious steady hard rock journalism reportage in the paper too but we also try to find lots of room for literature writing that comes from really deeply personal place and community and neighborhoods and cities they resonate on that that level and i think that that the nature of that kind of writing about a city is often lost i can't tell you how many times like people have come to us that have said like you know, for instance, I had like a major architectural firm contact us to sort of say, you know, like our writing is bereft of that real sort of personal nature. Can you help us? There's been groups that have come to us for that reason. And that's a real source of pride that they can see that, you know, we are really interested in voice and we are really interested in perspective and the unique perspective that writers bring to work. So, yeah, be yourself. I think that's the best advice available. Dave, thanks for talking to me. I hope you have a good new year and congratulations to the Americans. I think it was a great project. Well, thanks and congratulations to you guys. Keep that train rolling. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>